that all the peoples, nations of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. You know, we worship the Ancient of Days and the Ancient of Days gave to the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, a kingdom and glory, authority, power, that we might worship him. And when we come to the Gospel of John, which we do this morning, we must never forget that we come understanding the purpose of John. John chapter 20, verse 31, that these things have been written so that we might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that in believing we might have life in his name. And then we must also view the Gospel of John through the lens of chapter 1, verse 14, which says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So every time we approach this holy gospel, we need to always keep those things in mind. And we turn our attention this morning to the gospel of John once again, and we find ourselves in the middle of chapter 2 this morning. If you're visiting with us, we're working our way verse by verse through the gospel of John. It's so great to see you, well, a quarter of you, and hello, Carrie Lodge, but let's get into the word of God together. And it's exciting to be, have the privilege, regardless of the situation, uh, to be able to open the word of God. Last Sunday, we saw Jesus exhibit his authority over all true worship as he exercised his lordship over the place that the people of God came to meet and worship God. He did that. He exhibited his authority and his lordship in clearing out the temple court. Well, this morning, we're still in the middle of that event inside the temple. And so let's read verses 12 to 22 again this morning with verses 18 to 22, our passage of consideration. Follow along with me in your Bibles, John chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? Verse 21, John tells us, But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, we come... Uh, before you acknowledging that where your people gather, your glory and your holiness is made evident. And so, Father, we come worshipping in you, in conviction of your holiness, the supreme manifestation of your attributes. Lord, you are holy, majestic, loving, gracious, kind, merciful. And so, Father, we come humbled that you've adopted us into your family that we are members, citizens now of your coming eternal kingdom that we just spoke of that is everlasting. And so, Father, we believe in the Holy Spirit and we ask, Lord, that he would move among us, guiding and illuminating truth even as we sit under your word preached. For we all do that and we do that eagerly so that we might leave here more informed more aware and more like your son as we behold his glory, as he reveals his glory to us even now. So we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit and we thank you for your son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. There's a word that appears often in scripture 
And it is the word almighty. Almighty. It occurs some 56 times. And it always is ascribed to God, right? No surprise. To God alone. And what is meant by almighty is that God is powerful. Powerful. And that his power is never diminished. Never diminished. Isaiah 40 verse 28 says, Have you not heard? The everlasting God, Yahweh, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. There's some crucial ways in which God's power can be seen. For example, we see God's power, don't we, in creation, where God literally created everything out of nothing. The power of God is also seen in the way in which God sustains creation. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, speaking of God the Son, says that the Lord Jesus Christ upholds all things, that is, all things, not some things, all things by the word of His power. Then there are two other ways God's power is made evident. Number one, in His work of redemption. In His work of redemption. Where God takes a rebellious heart that is dead in sin, Blinded by the devil, under the curse of the law, and he transforms that heart, giving it new desires, new affections, and a new nature. Second, in his work of resurrection. A day will soon come when God will raise every single person from the dead. Every single person. Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29, an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs, that is in the grave, will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. And the fullest expression of the resurrecting power of God is seen in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus himself. And this morning, we get a glimpse into the power of God and the knowledge of God revealed in the person and work of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And what a comfort it is to know that our Lord, our Savior, who is our God and King, is all-powerful and all-knowing. I mean, imagine for a moment you served a king who was just knew a little bit and only had a little bit of power. There'd be little comfort in that. But how great the comfort is that we worship and serve and are known by and have as our King and our Father and our Savior and all-powerful and all-knowing God. Last Sunday, we walked through three scenes inside the temple. If you missed that, I'd encourage you to pick that up online. Three scenes inside the temple where we saw first a convenient approach. As the attitude, the entire attitude of worship had become based on ease and comfort. Worship of the one true God had become a matter of just comfort and ease and expediency at the expense of conviction. And then a result of that, and then as a result of that very thing, we saw second, that as the son looked on, witnessing his father's house being polluted, he then cleared it out. All those who were defiling the temple and We made note of the fact that it was a supernatural event indeed as he did that for one man unknown to them with a little whip came and cleared out the entire court area of all the sellers and all the animals and all the money changers without the guards both in the temple and the Roman fort watching on without them ever being engaged This was a supernatural event. And then in light of all of that, we saw third, the response from the first five disciples. Jesus called his first five. They witnessed all of this. And then we saw there that they remembered the scripture. The Psalm 69 verse 9 is what they quoted. Zeal for your house has consumed me. And amazing, as they recalled that scripture, which I showed you last week, continues on by speaking of the Messiah. The reproaches fall upon him and he acts as Messiah. And so even there, beginning there, the first five disciples, as they witness this, are beginning to connect the dots that Jesus, this zeal, is because he is the Messiah. And so three scenes. 
I made mention last week of this and I want to do so again for it really oozes out once more from the text that Jesus is the true temple. He's the greater temple. In times prior, all worship, all true worship came through the temple. But now in our day, as new covenant believers, all true worship occurs in and through Jesus. And the greatest manifestation of all true worship is the Lord's day when the people gather to worship the Lord. Jesus said of himself in Matthew chapter 12, verse 6, I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. After those three scenes that we saw last Sunday, are three more. Three more. And that's what we'll look at today. We'll see first an egotistical request in verse 18. And second, we'll see an enigmatic response in verses 19 to 21. And then in verse 22, we'll see an eventful recollection. An egotistical request. An, event, an enigmatic response and an eventful recollection. Let's pick up in verse 18 where we see that after Jesus has cleared out the entire area of all the animals, the sellers and the money changers, we see the religious and political Jewish authorities arrive. And that's the first scene. Number one, if you're taking notes, an egotistical request. Look at verse 18. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? I want you to understand that those making this request are the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin. They were those who dwelt inside the temple. They were the political and the religious elite of the nation of Israel. They were the supreme court of Israel. In terms of governing the nation's rules and the nation's laws and the terms of worship. They met as a council inside the temple every day. Apart from the religious festivals and apart from the Sabbath. Outside of that, they were there, the political and religious elite inside the temple. And so Jesus' actions inside the temple, the clearing of the house, the words of rebuke over that expedient worship, they were committed against the highest court. And they would have come to the immediate attention of the members of the highest court, the Sanhedrin. And so they come requesting Jesus' identity. That's what is meant by the Jews there in verse 18. Notice they say, show us a sign. Us. That's an interesting way to ask for someone's identity, isn't it? What sign do you show us? If you and I were asked by the governing authorities to identify ourselves, it's often through a driver's license or a date of birth. Etc. But here they are requesting identification by asking for a sign. A sign that would indicate what kind of authority that this man before them, who they don't even know, possesses to do what he just did. To come in and upset the lay of the land, as it were. You see, the council of the Sanhedrin, they established, as I said, countless laws for the nations. Often we know, didn't they? They went beyond what is written in Scripture. They were later condemned for that very thing, weren't they? By Jesus later on for becoming, what did he say? Experts at laying aside the commandments of God and replacing them with what? The commands of men. And so Jesus entered the temple not as a revolutionary. Not as a revolutionary. Seeking to overturn the socio-political Matters because Jesus teaches and knows, does he not, that those things be belong to the governing authorities or socio-political matters beyond, belong to the governing authorities. But what Jesus did do was he put his finger on one thing and one thing alone. He said, I am Lord over worship. This house, which is my father's which is a house of worship, He has made me the one to rule over. You can have your laws and your customs, even though you have corrupted them too. You can have those, but I am here to exhibit that when it comes to worship, I am Lord. In fact, that authority has been given to me by my Father. 
And turn with me a moment to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. Look at verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses was also in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house, as a son over his house. Whose house we are. That's you and I. The church. We are. Christ was given authority as the son over the father's house. The father has delegated authority to the son. And Jesus is inside the temple exercising that delegated authority. Not over political matters, not over societal matters, not over governmental affairs, but over worship. Declaring by word and deed and divine delegated appointment by the Father that He is Lord over worship. And when it pertains to worship, He is showing that His Lordship exceeds the nation's mandates. And so members of the Sanhedrin come to this one man, unknown to them, who had just cleared the place out, not with an army tank, but with a tiny whip. And they come wondering full well how this occurred and who it is that made this occur. And I want you to consider their question for a moment. What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Their words highlight that this confrontation and challenge, and it was a confrontation and challenge, that they are directing toward Jesus, includes them wondering if they actually are dealing with a genuine prophet, someone sent from God. They're taken aback. They must have been by what just occurred, for it was out of the ordinary. It truly was extraordinary. And they knew it. And yet... The sign they are asking for, understand this, has more to do with trying to expose Jesus as a fraud than it does for them seeking genuine proof. But I do believe they still wonder. They still wonder, who, who is this that just did this? And so somewhat paradoxically, they are confrontive and a tad cautious. They are sheepishly egotistical. You see, one of the problems of them requesting a sign here really was requesting signs was shown to be something that they often desired not to fall in line with what God truly wanted but to affirm them in their own selfishness you see they would regularly ask for signs this is what they did Mark chapter 8 verse 11 says the Jews came out and began to argue with him seeking from him a sign from heaven but Jesus would respond to those who asked him for a sign in both Matthew 12 and Luke 11 and other places, by saying, in Matthew 12, 39, for example, an evil, an adulterous generation craves for a sign. Craves for a sign. And yet, Jesus said, no sign will be given. No sign will be given. And so at first glance, upon reading our passage, as the members of the Sanhedrin, they come... Asking a question, requesting a sign, it may sound somewhat reasonable. But here is why it is not. And here is why Jesus condemns them as evil in seeking a sign. Here's the reason. They don't accept signs. They don't accept signs. And they are simply deflecting. They are deflecting. Jesus had just exposed them as those who've turned pure worship into polluted worship. And he put his microscope onto the substance of that which polluted the worship and uncovered that it is their treasuring of comfort and ease, which is evidenced by their love of money. The love of money is just the flower. The heart issue behind that kind of greed is the idol of comfort and ease. 
They had created a culture of worship based on expediency and lethargy for the worshiper and profits for themselves. And so Jesus asks a question about his so they asked Jesus a question about his authority to do what he had just done. When the very act, if you think about it, the very act of clearing out the entire temple of all the hustle and bustle of all the business and trade of all the animals was itself a sign. And they knew it. The key thing to grasp is that they are sidestepping the issue. You see, what ought to have been said by them and what contrite hearts would say would be, you know what? We were wrong about what we did. It was wrong of us to have created such an environment. We were making comfort and ease our greatest treasure, which was made evident. And you're right. In our treasuring of money instead of God. Thanks for highlighting that for us. And you know what? What's just occurred here was clearly evidence of God working in and through you. Tell us about yourself. Instead, knowing full well what they were doing was wrong. They revealed their true heart. And instead of displaying a heart of humility that flows out of a heart that loves God, they arrogantly and egotistically ask for a sign of validity, illustrating that they do not have a heart for God, but for an ongoing culture of worship on their terms. When you consider who they were, the political and spiritual aristocrats of the nation, it's no surprise that they were doing what they were doing. And it's no surprise they asked for a sign. Because they were truly hoping that Jesus' lack of ability to perform one will draw attention away from them and their sinful hearts and prevent an expose. They're egotistical, they're arrogant, and they're unregenerate. The Apostle John would later go on to write in John chapter 12, verse 37, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. And that's important to note. Jesus did not perform signs to cause people to believe in him. He primarily did signs so that his followers, those who did believe in him, might be strengthened in their believing and in their following. And Jesus' signs validated and confirmed to his followers who he was. Yet he did signs before the watching people. Indeed, he did. But the primary purpose was to validate who he was to his people, to his sheep, and to draw out his sheep from the crowds and encourage them as they went on. He withheld signs from the unbelieving. They craved them and he withheld them. I could digress, but I won't and say much about ministries that want to illustrate the power of God through supposed signs as an attempt to draw unbelievers in. It is literally contrary to the ministry and philosophy of the Lord Jesus Christ, but I digress. You see, the very philosophy that Jesus displayed here, the withholding of signs from the unbelieving, became the very apostolic philosophy of the apostles in the early church and still to this day. The apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 to 23, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a foolishness to the nations, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so when you and I have people make a request of us about our Lord, remember, there's no sign that causes them to believe. But God uses the proclamation of Christ and him crucified as the power 
unto salvation. We can trust in the power of God to work in the heart of the lost. We're simply to be found faithful, aren't we, in the content? We don't need signs and symbols. We simply need to proclaim the foolishness of the cross and trust in the almighty power of an almighty God to raise them from the dead and unite them to Christ. So that's the first scene, an egotistical request. Namely, a request for a sign. Next we'll see Jesus give them something to think about now. And that's the second scene in verses 19 to 21, an enigmatic response. Look at verse 19. Here's Jesus' response. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. They ask for a sign. This is what Jesus says. The word enigmatic means mysterious or puzzling. And to the Sanhedrin standing before him, this indeed was puzzling. Look at verse 20. They reply, it took 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? They're puzzled, mystified by this enigmatic response. We can sympathize, right, to one degree. They would have thought that Jesus was pointing to the temple. And this really is a stroke of genius by Jesus here. Because by saying what he does, he is, I believe, subtly conveying that for anyone to claim that they can knock down the temple and build it again in just 72 hours must possess all authority and all power over the terms of its function, namely worship. So Jesus is being subtly genius here. Primarily, when we hear this, we know that it's prophetic. Just as John tells us in verse 21, look, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. Amazingly enough, it would be this statement by Jesus here that would be used against Jesus in the court of law when the phony charges were leveled at him by the political and religious elite of the nation. In one of those six illegal trials that he'll face in the lead up to his crucifixion. Mark chapter 14, verses 55 to 58 says, Now the whole Sanhedrin were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they did not find any. For many bore false witness against Jesus, but their testimony was inconsistent. Then some stood up and testified falsely against him, saying, We heard him say, quote, I will destroy this man-made temple, and in three days I will build another that is made without hands, end quote. But they misconstrued his words. Jesus never said, I will destroy. He said, destroy this temple. Now, in case you think that's cutting fine hairs, I need you to understand that the verb destroy in the Greek is what is called a second person plural. A second person plural. Meaning, Jesus is saying, you will destroy this and then I will raise it up again. And we know, destroy his body, they did. Because, as it says there in verse 21, he was speaking of the temple of his body. Even as he hung upon the cross, Mark 15 verse 29 says, those passing by were hurling abuse at him. Wagging their heads, saying, huh, you who are, who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, come down and save yourself. But here's the key to what Jesus means by when he says to them, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. He's saying, you asked for a sign, yet the only sign I'm going to give you is this, my death, my burial. And my resurrection. That's all you're going to get. Turn with me to Luke chapter 11 for a moment. Luke chapter 11. Look at verse 29. As the crowds were increasing, he began to say, 
This generation is a wicked generation. I think you and I would say the same thing about our generation. It seeks, Jesus says, for a sign. And yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. Sign of Jonah. That's the only sign you get, Jesus says, to the unbelieving world who are by God's definition wicked and crooked and perverse. It's the only sign you get. No sign will be given except that one. Well, what is the sign of Jonah? What was it? Well, you know, it's a metaphor for the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus. When you think about the ministry of Jesus, he performed miraculous works of healing right before the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees, all through the, th the three years of his public ministry. They witnessed firsthand the miracles of Jesus. And yet they always requested signs. They always made excuses for Jesus' miracles. They always said they were never heavenly. And so Jesus emphatically says here, and in Matthew chapter 12, verse 38 to 41, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Back to John 2 now, where Jesus is still in the middle of condemning those tasked with ensuring true terms of worship. What we begin to see now as Jesus responds in this way, when he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. We really see now coming to the fore, Jesus displaying his deity, his divinity. Because he predicts the future with precision. How does he do that? Because he's God in human flesh. Truly God and truly man. And so what we have before us and in all of this, and really what John wants us to see is the omnipotence and the om omnis omniscience of Jesus. I fumbled there because I think most of us say omniscience. But I checked it today. Well, during the week, and again, and it's omniscience. We don't say science, we say science. <laughs> but I fumbled because I'm so used to saying that. We see the omnipotence and the omniscience of Jesus. To be omniscient is to be all-knowing. To be omnipotent is to be all-powerful. Omni being the word for all, potent being the word for power and authority, and science being the word for knowledge. Jesus is all-knowing. That's seen there from those words in verse 19. In the first half at least. You will destroy this temple. And Jesus can see the future. He knows all things. But also Jesus is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. That's seen in the very end of verse 19. And in three days I will raise it up. Talking about his body. Jesus is truly God, He's truly man, and in possessing the divine nature, He possesses the divine attributes. That's what and who our God is in the person of Jesus Christ. They're all-powerful and all-knowing. You know, Job wrote of our God when he said to God in Job 42 verse 2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And so in all of this, inside the temple, we see not only the authority of Jesus over true worship, but also the longing heart of God for Him to receive worship. And what I mean by that is this. Turn ahead with me to John chapter 10. When Jesus speaks of Himself of being the good shepherd in verse 11. He says, I am the good shepherd. And then again in verse 14. I am the good shepherd. And then in verse 17, he speaks of the Father loving him. 
For this reason the Father loves me, he said, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. Why does the Father love him? Well, he loves him not only because in eternity past, before creation, all that the Father and the Son only ever experienced was perfect love and fellowship. But the Father loves the Son also because the Son demonstrated his love for the Father by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. As he laid down his life for his sheep. Look at verse 18. No one has taken it, speaking of his life, away from me. But I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, Jesus says. And I have authority to take it up again. Look at the end of verse 18. This commandment I received from my Father. You are in my Father's house. Is what Jesus is saying. You have abandoned and abdicated your responsibility to ensure true worship takes place. You have come in over the top and removed true worship. You are exercising an authority that never pertains to you because I am the Son. I have been delegated authority over all true worship, over the Son. And you are inside my Father's house. And you come and ask me for a sign? The only sign you'll ever get from me is when you destroy my body, the true and greater temple, and I will raise it up again. Because the Father has commanded I do so. And by this, my Father is well pleased. You are going to destroy my body. According to the predetermined plan of a sovereign God. And do not think for a moment, Jesus said in Matthew 26, verse 53, He said that I cannot appeal to my Father. And He will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. But instead of that, what we see from the Son is a willing submission to the Father's will. And do you know what the express purpose was for Jesus' death Burial and resurrection, this sign of Jonah. John chapter 4, verse 21 to 24 says that a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain in Jerusalem at the temple, but a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such as these to worship Him. God is spirit and His worshippers must worship Him in spirit and in truth truth and so jesus told the socio-political establishment of the nation of israel that the exceeding wickedness of the world only has one remedy it's not morality it's not a good government it's not a change in government it's not clean air it's not clean water Though all those things may be great and are great in and of themselves, the only remedy for wickedness inside the heart of mankind, Jesus is saying, is my death, my burial, and my resurrection. But the Jews here didn't get it, and there's some of you sitting here that don't get it. Verse 20 of John 2. It took 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it up in three days? They didn't get it. Why didn't they get it? They were consumed with the horizontal. The things here on earth. But the sun, the sun was consumed with worship, consumed with zeal for his father's house. Knowing that his death, his burial and resurrection would bring about true worshippers. Who worship the Father who is worthy to receive such worship. And at his death, the veil 
was torn. And the purpose of the temple is gone. For access is granted through Jesus Christ, who is the true and greater and ultimate temple. And so by all that Jesus is doing here, inside this first temple clearing, He's showing us that the temple was simply that which was pointing to a better way. The author of Hebrews calls it a new and living way. By Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, He replaces the temple and He acts as the ultimate fulfillment of its purposes. And so we've seen the request. It was egotistical. We've seen the response. It was enigmatic. It was mysterious and puzzling to the Jews. But to the believer. It was a sense of the immensity of the Son's love. In dying for them. And that out of gratitude they will worship. And that by God's grace they'll do so in spirit. And in truth. They won't come out of expediency and ease. They'll come out of the truth. Of the conviction of who God is. The privilege is all ours. The joy is all ours. May that warm your heart. This morning. Third and final scene is a flash forward. It's a flash forward to a day. Ahead for the disciples. Because don't forget that this was all really done for them. (laughs) They're present. We see in verse 22 that once again they see all of this. And just like we saw last Sunday, they respond by recalling the scripture. I find that fascinating. Number three, an eventful recollection. In verse 22. An eventful recollection. Look at verse 22. And so when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Remember who it was who's writing this gospel. John. Remember that John was one of the first five. Remember that John was inside the temple and personally witnessed all of this. He was there on this day. And here in verse 22, he is displaying humility, John is, the apostle, by acknowledging that he also did not quite understand all that was happening at the time. It was only after Jesus, by the workings of the Father and the Spirit, raised himself from the dead. That may sound incredibly confusing, but let me explain. Romans chapter 1 tells us that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that the Father raised Jesus from the dead. And John chapter 10 tells us that Jesus raised himself from the dead. The resurrection, like all works of God, are the one divine being in the one operation. Jesus raises himself from the dead. And it's only after Jesus being raised from the dead that the disciples recollected all that Jesus said to them. Once the Son had resurrected and then ascended to the Father, what occurred? What occurred? I don't normally, I don't normally ask questions and expect an answer, but I'm going, to do, I'm going to. It's a little different today. We'll make it a little different. After Jesus ascended, or he was resurrected, and then he ascended to the Father, what occurred? Mrs. Elaine Rogers said the Holy Spirit was sent. The ascending of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit came. What does the Holy Spirit do? Guides and leads us into all truth, Right? Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 26, the helper, the Holy Spirit, 
whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things. And what? And bring to remembrance all that I said to you. That's what John is saying here in verse 22. He's literally saying that's what happened. Look at the end of verse 22. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. That's remarkable. All the Old Testament passages, that's what they had in the time. All the Old Testament. Jesus was unfolding that over three years with them. Showing them all the passages that spoke of him as the Messiah. Spoke of him as the one dying. As our substitute, Isaiah 53. Rising again, Psalm 16. The resurrections in the Old Testament in more than one place. All taught in the Old Testament scriptures, beginning with Moses. All through the Old Testament. It was all brought back to mind. I tell you what, well, I don't need to tell you this, but the pastor's not Jesus. He just points others to Jesus. But this is an encouragement to the pastor who preaches the word of God because he'll know that the sermons may not have an immediate effect. But in time, the truths, the word of God, little by little come to bear down as God works by his spirit in taking the scripture and bringing what has been heard to remembrance. It's the work of the Word through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what happened with the disciples. This is what John's highlighting for us. That we serve a living God who is at work. He is Almighty Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus here inside the temple has displayed His omnipotence. And his omniscience, evidencing his complete sovereign rule. There's a major applications in light of this truth. What a comfort. What a privilege. What an exceeding joy to worship the almighty, the all-knowing, all-powerful, and certainly all-present one. The one who knows all our needs. The one who knows all our worries. The one who knows all our trials. And who by his power sustains us in them. And who by his power perseveres through us. Who also, having demonstrated his power in redeeming us and raising us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places so that everything that is ours is his is ours. What blessed union there is with the Son. So that, there's always an express purpose, so that in the coming ages... He might display the surpassing riches of His grace demonstrated by His kindness to us who are in Christ Jesus. We are known and loved by an all-powerful, all-knowing God and Savior who is able to do far abundantly beyond anything we could ever ask or think according to the power, His power, that works in us. To Him be the glory in the church, the Apostle Paul said. In the church, to Him be the glory. And how is His glory made evident in the church? Through worship through adoration, through collective praise and collective song, 
And collectively, including the preacher sitting under his word as he speaks to his church and exercises his lordship over his church, to him be the glory. Throughout all generations, forever and ever. You see, God's power and knowledge of all things, the fact that he is omnipotent and that he is omniscient, And that those truths are revealed and made evident through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It comforts us and sustains us in our daily lives. Which can get pretty tough. But because of the sign of Jonah. We'll be okay. You know he knows all that we're going through. He knows all our faults and failures. And he loves us the same. That's immense. That's tremendous. Is he not worthy to receive devoted and committed and complete worship no matter the circumstance and no matter the cost? Is he not worthy? He has sent his son to die, to be buried, and to rise again So that we might just do that. It's been well said that we were saved to worship. Let's pray. Father, we come before you acknowledging your kindness and goodness. Father, thank you for your word. Father, would you take what we've looked at today and plant it deep by your spirit, deep inside our heart. There's so much more that can be said, so many other things. But Lord, take what we've looked at. Help us to be encouraged and lifted up. Help us, even in the face of uncertainty, to know that you are worthy to receive our worship. Thank you for your comforting truths that sustain us in our life. That you know all that we're going through. That you know all our faults and failures and that you love us the same as your children. You are a good, good father and we want to worship you and bring you glory by all that we say and do. We thank you for the precious Lord Jesus. We thank you for the sign of Jonah. Lord, may the zeal that consumed your son. May we get a glimpse of that, taste in that, be motivated by that, not burdened by that, but delighted by the privilege it is to partake in worship. Lord, we've beheld your glory as we've gazed at the omnipotent, omniscient son. Father, and by faith we trust in you that you tell us in your word That as we behold your glory, we are transformed from one level of glory to the next. We want to bring you glory. As people observe our lives and as we illustrate whom we truly treasure. Help us by your spirit to truly treasure your son and all God's people said.